Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we come to the concluding message in our series, Lifestyle of the Gospel. So let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 16, verses 20 to 27, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message, Glory to the Only Wise God. begin today's message by summing up not only the passage that we're going to be discussing, but really the entire book of Romans. The message of the entire book of Romans is the glory of God. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the word glory, let me try a few synonyms. The book of Romans was written to highlight the splendor of God or the beauty of God or the excellence of God or, or to showcase just how magnificent God really is. Now, early on in Romans, Paul uses the term righteousness of God quite often. And just so we understand the connection, the righteousness of God and the glory of God are often connected to each other. And that's because God's righteousness means that God acts in justice. He always does that which is not only right, but that which is consistent with his altogether holy character. God, you see, is never morally compromised. God never acts hypocritically or inconsistently. So I hope you see, and once you understand God's righteousness, you're gonna be overwhelmed at God's glory. God's righteousness leads all who are exposed to it to proclaim God's glory. So when Paul begins the book of Romans with the statement that he's not ashamed of the gospel for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, what he's saying is that the glad saving news of Jesus showcases the matchless splendor of God. Once you understand the gospel, you should put your hand to your mouth and refrain from your own opinions and just fall on your knees and worship. See, look at it this way. In the world in which we live, it's all about talk and human opinions and, and discussions really about human rights. So I'm not arguing against the importance of that discussion, but I observe the discussion just never stops. There's always someone else with a further opinion, and that's because this discussion is always about human beings, by human beings, for the advancement of human beings. And what's of interest to me is that for many, it has escaped their notice that there's something vastly more important than that discussion. God, the creator of all things, is so magnificent or so glorious that once you get it, the impulse is not more talk but a hushed and reverent worship for all the ways of God are just and perfect. And so as we've seen, the book of Romans is a showcase of God's glory, the gospel of Jesus Christ. First, Paul has shown us the heart of the gospel. We, whether Jews or Gentiles, are lost in our rebellion against God. And in spite of the fact that God has given us life and, and provides us his daily goodness, we actively suppress the knowledge of God who is worthy of all worship place of the worship of God, we've worshiped created things. We are all, without exception, guilty of the greatest of all sins, which is failure to worship the one true God. But, says the gospel, God revealed his righteousness best in this, not in justly condemning ruined sinners, which would be just and righteous, but in sending Christ his Son, who became the wrath-bearing sacrifice, paying for the punishment of our sins, so that all who put their faith in him are forgiven. Then came the power of the gospel, knowing that once we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Christ is now the head of a new race of humanity, and we have been given the Holy Spirit, and through him, 
the power to do that which we could not have done on our own. And then comes the progress of the gospel. The reason why the good news of Jesus progressed to us is because God chose to have mercy on us and also because God has, through the Jewish story, brought the gospel even to the Gentiles. And then, of course, finally, the the lifestyle of the gospel. Given that we have embraced the glad news of Jesus, the way we now live is shaped by what God has done for us in the gospel. All of life is transformed. And then at the very end of Romans, Paul appeals to believers to safeguard the gospel. Watch out for those who want to distort the the news of this gospel. Don't let them get away with that. With all that being said, Paul now comes to the very end of the book of Romans. I'm reading the last few lines in this book, Romans 16, 20 to 27. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him, who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, when we last left off in our study of Romans, we watched as Paul urged the church to to watch out for those who create divisions and for those who scandalize the gospel of Jesus. So the indication was there that the gospel of Jesus was under attack. But now comes the promise of verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You know, in your battle to defend the gospel, says Paul, count on God. See, that statement in verse 20 is no doubt taken from Genesis 3.15. In the very beginning of our Bible, after Eve had been deceived by Satan, yet in grace God had given her a promise. He said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know, the promise that an offspring of the woman would crush Satan is seen in Christ. Let me illustrate that. When Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo, he returned defeated to Paris. For a short period of time, he still tried to mount a new army, but he could not escape the consequences of his defeat at Waterloo. The same thing was accomplished on the cross. Satan may now rage against the church of Christ. Satan may now attempt to subvert the gospel of Jesus, but he will never escape his defeat at the cross. In the end, he will be entirely vanquished. So count on God. When false teachers try to destroy the message of the gospel, know this, they can't succeed. Christ has triumphed over the evil one, and for that reason, it is now only a matter of time until his defeat is secured. He may be a raging foe, but he is also a defeated foe. History is against him as defeat is sure. Now, in the next three verses, that is in Romans 16, 21 to 24, Paul greets the Roman church. He mentions Timothy, who has been his closest worker, and then a number of others who have tirelessly worked with him, including one Tertius, who must have been Paul's personal secretary, writing down the book of Romans at Paul's dictation. So 
You have to imagine Paul in a room, perhaps he's walking about and slowly giving the message of Romans as Tertius is seated behind a desk, a writing implement in his hand with with great skill and speed, able to record everything the apostles said. That's how the book of Romans was written. Many Bible teachers have wondered why Paul includes this section right here. I mean, why not have it at the end of verse 16? Now, you might remember that for the first 16 verses of Romans 16, Paul has personally greeted believers, the believers in Rome. So why not then immediately greet them from all his co-workers? I mean, why have a section of warning regarding false teaching and then followed by a greeting from Paul's team? Well, the answer, when you think about it, is simple. Paul has just warned them about false teachers. He wants them to make sure they remember the true teachers, and here is a list of them. See, when you think about that, that's important for, for us to hear. We also need to give attention to the good teachers. And then Paul now comes to the very last words of the book. It's kind of like a, a benediction. You know, when I was a child growing up in church, every, every church service ended with a benediction. It was a, a kind of blessing from the Lord as the congregation left the worship service. So here at the end of Romans, Paul's giving the church a kind of a benediction. And this benediction, rather than simply being a word of blessing, really is is fitting to everything he said. Having told them to avoid what is false and to cling to what is good, Paul wants the church in Rome now to stand in the gospel. So in order to emphasize that, he wants to communicate that through a benediction. First, he says, only the gospel has the power to establish you. Look again at the first part of verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you by my gospel. Now the word is able comes from the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get our English word dynamite and and it often refers to sheer raw power. You know, sometimes that word is used to describe the, the performing of a miracle because a miracle represents the power of God. Now, when the word is used as a verb, it's translated as able or to be capable of or to be strong and powerful. Paul is saying that the gospel has strength. It has an unstoppable power to do something. The gospel, says Paul, has the power to strengthen you. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching for Canadians. What has been accomplished is a result of people like you listening right now who share our hearts for this mission. In particular, those who have chosen to join us in ministry as monthly partners. As we begin a new year, perhaps becoming an 1119 monthly partner might be something you'd consider. Your investment in this ministry assures that people of all ages and stages of life have opportunity to discover more about a new life in Christ through the study of God's Word. Your partnership in 2022 will provide the resources to sustain and expand the reach of Bible teaching across Canada and beyond. To learn more about the 1119 Monthly Partnership Program, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call us at one 800 663-2425. When Paul says that the gospel has the unstoppable power to strengthen those who believe, we've got to get the context. Do you remember the beginning of Romans? In Romans 1.16, Paul said, 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Do you see that? Paul begins Romans by talking of God's power in the gospel to save, and then he ends Romans by talking of God's power in the gospel to keep. What a promise. The same power that brought you to salvation is the power that keeps you in salvation, but more so, it strengthens and establishes you. See, I often think about the ramifications of that. Let me tell you a little personal story. You know, in the early years when I first began pastoral ministry, I imagined that everything was up to me. Was I, you know, was I good enough to ensure the growth and the health of the church? And, and then, as I began to mature a little, I thought, Maybe it's our church and the communal leadership and the passion of the entire congregation. Are we good enough to reach the lost and be spiritually healthy? But at some point, something changed inside me. The real question I concluded was this. Is the gospel good enough? Is the gospel powerful enough? If all we do is simply make the gospel message plain and make sure that it's not obscured, would that be good enough? And that's the last question. That is the question of faith. Every other question is the question of our abilities and our glory. But the last question is the question of God's glory. It's the question of what he has done in the gospel. Do you see that? Now, this confidence in the gospel is not just a question of the faith of the whole church. It's also the question of the individual believer. It's our confidence in the gospel that says, grace has saved me and that same grace will keep me. That's what Paul declared back in Romans 8, 38 and 39 when he said, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's see if you identify with what I'm about to say. See, I find in myself that I am quite capable of walking away from Christ. Are you shocked? Don't be. But I also find that Christ will not let me go. And because of that, I make every effort to strive with all my heart to remain in his grace. Does that sound like a contradiction to you? Well, it isn't. He who has the power to keep me also has the power to motivate me, to work in me so that I might desire him. Now the last part of verse 25 and on to verse 26. According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings. Now, that's a mouthful. So let's start with Paul's use of the term mystery. What does that mean when he says that the preaching of Jesus and the message of the gospel is according to the revelation of a mystery? Now, in Paul's writings, the term mystery doesn't mean something that's hard to understand. Rather, a mystery is something that no human being would have thought up in advance. Let me give you an example from our world. Think for a moment of books that we call mysteries today. They're often a whodunit, a murder mystery. So if the book is an exceptional one, well, you'll never figure it out until right at the end. And then, knowing what you now know, well, everything makes sense. How come I couldn't see that before? Now, that's not a bad analogy to how Paul uses the term. The gospel is a mystery in the sense that no one would have figured it out in advance. Now, it is true that it was hinted at in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, for instance, speaks of the suffering servant who would be crushed for our iniquities, but, but even there, the, the full extent of what is coming is still clouded. 
For who could have seen what 1 Corinthians 5.21 says? That God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Or who could have come up with a great exchange that, that Christ would become sin for me, that his righteous life would be counted to my credit? Who would have foreseen that the Messiah would first have to suffer to be a sin offering before he received the kingdom? And furthermore, who could have foreseen that in the sufferings of the Messiah, the Gentiles would be made fellow heirs with Israel, united by the sufferings of the Messiah? I mean, that that stuff's not hard to understand once you get to the end of the story, but no one could have come up with it in advance before God revealed it. God has to reveal it, then we understand. And this mystery, says Paul, has now been disclosed. We have now heard it, and more so. It's being proclaimed to all the nations. Look at the middle of verse 26. It has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, he says. See, I want you to notice when Paul speaks of a mystery of the gospel, he uses three verbs. The first is back in verse 25. It's translated as kept secret. It means to keep quiet about something, tell no one. There was a time when God let the nations go on in ignorance. That is, what he was doing in Israel was known and only in Israel. The vast majority of humanity had not even heard a whisper of what God was doing. The second verb is in verse 26. It's the verb disclosed. It means to make something that was invisible to become visible. It's like living where I do in Vancouver in January. It's dark most of the time, and even when it becomes day, sky is often obscured by thick clouds, sometimes fog and a lot of rain. People are living right next to some of the most glorious mountains in the world, but they're obscured from them. But show up in July, and the mountains are disclosed. That is, they become stunningly visible in all their beauty, and that's what God intended. God, at one point in time, pulled back the curtain and revealed the gospel. It was disclosed. Now, notice the third verb in verse 26. It's the word made known. It means that someone now has been given information about something. It could also mean to make someone's acquaintance. The verb personalizes the matter. It's not just that God has pulled back the veil so that anyone who wants to can look, but God has now sent out his servants, giving the good news to those who weren't even seeking for it. See, the very nature of the gospel is that it, that it needs to be proclaimed. The story has to be told. Someone needs to be called to faith in Christ. The gospel was meant not just to be seen and believed. It was meant to be proclaimed. Now look at the last part of verse 26. To bring about the obedience of faith. That is to say, the gospel produces changed lives. Again, we're forced to see how the end of the book so closely mirrors the beginning of this book. Back in Romans 1 verse 5, Paul speaks of the very essence of his ministry. He says, through whom, that is through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. See, Paul always believed and taught that we're saved by grace through faith alone, but he also taught that the kind of faith he was speaking about or the kind of faith he wanted to see in people was the obedience of faith. He meant there was a kind of faith which always produced obedience to Christ. See, there are always two errors. The first is the belief in legalism. We might call this the obedience of works. That is, I, I'm trying to pay God back for what he's done. I'm, I'm trying to be good enough to earn my salvation. That's an error. But the other error is equally insidious. We might call this lawless faith. 
See, lawless faith is the idea of easy believism. Jesus speaks of this when on the final day, he speaks of those who call him Lord, but just never got around to doing what he said. True faith brings about an obedience that flows from faith. It changes lives. It it takes lawless people and makes them into slaves of Christ. And then now to the final word, and this to the glory of Christ. Verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. (laughs) That's the right conclusion of this book. It's, It's all about the glory of God. It's about his splendor, his magnificence. To him alone be the glory for the gospel. The gospel, which includes our own salvation, is ultimately for God's glory and for God's glory alone. We are the showcases of his workmanship. If it's a true gospel, it makes much of God. If it's a false gospel, it makes much of us. Please understand the difference, and I hope you do. A false gospel tells you of everything that you've done to get right with God. The true gospel tells everything that God has done. It focuses on his saving purposes. It focuses on the death of his son. It even focuses upon the drawing power of the Holy Spirit that led me to receive this great gospel. In the end, says Paul, glory to the only wise God. To him alone be the glory for our salvation. Amen. John, fantastic series. Thank you so much for sharing it with us, uh, the lifestyle of the gospel. Let me ask you relative to today's message. I'm just wondering, is there a possibility that we can be so concerned about sharing the gospel and seeing people come to the Lord that sometimes in doing so, we don't tell the truth of the gospel? Yeah, I think, Ben, you might be referring to, uh, you know, my reference I've made to Romans 1.5, where Paul says, you know, that he's received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. So I see two things there. The obedience of faith, meaning that when we truly believe, we submit ourselves to the will of the Father. That is, we renounce our own will and take upon ourselves his will. I mean, when that's not required of someone, when we're worried that it's too much to ask, obviously, I don't think we get real salvation anyway. I had a, a professor in seminary years ago who used to say, that which we win them with, we win them to. And I think that's right. If, if you win them with a, a gospel that's easy believism, they'll be one to a gospel of easy believism. On the other hand, also, you know, for the sake of his name, to him alone be the glory. Thanks so much, John. Thanks for a wonderful series. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. We believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Newfeld available on this station. But we know there's times when you may miss the radio program, so we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series both audio and video with Dr. John, but also learn more about our ministry podcasts, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our desire is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is available to as many people in as many ways as possible. 
For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.